I have three important men in my life. My husband, a unique blend of rugby-playing southern man and design-conscious architect, a lover of triple shot flat whites, evening runs on the beach and dragon's den. A gentle dad, too often found zooming around our daughter in makeshift toddler vehicles or teaching her how to launch herself onto padded landings. Then there's my dad, social worker, fitness fanatic and maker of the damn best homemade bread and peanut butter you'll ever find. Number three out of 11, he was raised in an archetypal Catholic family. He's the mediator, orator and generous giver of hugs. And finally there's my three-year-old nephew, a loving, scarily smart Fireman Sam fan who shares an equal passion for wrestling with his dad as he does baking with his granny his whole bright life ahead of him. Three men, well, two men and a boy, with different genetics, temperaments, pasts and futures. Three men, three treasures, whom I love with all my heart and who I wish will live long, meaningful, connected and satisfied lives. In 2019, 498 New Zealand men took their own lives three times the number of women. Globally, on average, one man dies by suicide every minute of every day. 70% of men say their friends can rely on them for support, but only 48% of them say they can rely on their own friends. In other words, our males are there for their mates, but something is stopping them from asking for help for themselves. We have a silent pandemic occurring that's killing our boys, our men, and every single one of us, whether you're male or female, young or old, has a role to play in turning around those statistics. As US Congressman Bill Richardson said, recognising and preventing men's health problems is not just a man's issue, because of its impact on wives, mothers, daughters and sisters, men's mental health is truly a family issue. I think I'd widen that to our men's mental health as a societal issue. I'm Jackie Maguire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work and relationships. Put simply, Mindbrew has been created to help people live the good life. In this episode, I speak with Dr Zach Seidler, a clinical psychologist, researcher and leading men's mental health expert. He currently holds dual roles as Director of Mental Health Training at Worldwide Charity Movember and Research Fellow with Origin at the University of Melbourne. Zach has dedicated his academic and professional career towards further understanding men's mental health and masculinity. His ultimate goal is to help reduce the staggering rate of male suicide worldwide. Well, thank you for joining me. It's very lovely to meet you. My starting point, I thought, Zach, would be it would be wonderful from you to have a state of the gender you know, rather than a state of the nation. What's the state of the gender in terms of our men, or boys and men, and mental health, especially in this part of the world? 
For sure. Well, it's lovely to be here and I think that that's a nice place to start to consider really the extent of the issue, what we call it in November, a crisis of men's health. And while that may seem like alarmist language, it doesn't even go halfway to explaining the issues that are facing boys and men today. I think there's a lot to be said for the history in many ways, um, especially when it comes to mental health. The system, the way that therapy and counselling have been created and how they hold and respond to men has been somewhat problematic. Think of the gender reckoning that's taking place at the moment with, you know, the Me Too movement and there's a lot of focus on domestic violence. There's, there's lots of stuff going on around gender in the gender space. And what we're realising is that it's about time men do a bit of self-reflection and um, consider the role of masculinity, what it looks like, where it comes from, how it impacts on their day-to-day, because that's really what happened with women in the 60s and 70s. They did a, a deep dive into what femininity meant, where it came from, and it led to a self-actualization of women and an empowerment of women to actually be in control of their health and well-being. I think that that's why we're seeing in many ways the stereotypical breaking away of women when it comes to their health outcomes in comparison to men, and, and that divide is growing every day. What we know is that men are less likely to be diagnosed with mental health issues, but I personally, um, from my several years of research, don't take that on face value to be truthful of the reality that's going on. So while men may be less likely to experience mental health issues, they're three to four times more likely to die by suicide. The life expectancy in Australia and New Zealand of men in comparison to women is, you know, four to six years younger. These stats are pretty alarming and they suggest that there is something going on below the surface that we might might not be focusing on, that we might not be picking up on and that we need to shine a light on and get men talking to other men about this stuff uh, so that we can get on the road to recovery faster. New Zealand currently has no national estimates of the prevalence of mental distress or mental disorder. The last national mental health survey was completed 14 years ago and prevalence estimates from that survey are now well out of date. From the small amount of research we have and data collected in 2018-2019, Women were, in New Zealand, or those that were researched, found to be 1.8 times as likely as men to have experienced psychological distress in the last four weeks. That's from the 2018-2019 New Zealand Health Survey. Research from across the Western world indicates that men underutilise mental health services in comparison to women. In the States, women are twice as likely to seek mental health services than men. In Australia, men are 11% less likely to see a psychiatrist or 18% less likely to see other helping professionals. Question is, what's going on for our boys and men? Why are their mental distress rates lower, but their suicide rates are higher? This is something that we're starting to focus on much more because when we see those discrepancies, I guess, in the in the suicide rates and the prevalence rates of, of mental health and they don't add up, we're also seeing this uptick in the number of men who are seeking help as well. So why are we getting more men seeking help and the suicide rate is going up at alarming rates at the same time? And the reason, I think, for this is because of what mental health issues look like in men and the fact that our system is either unable to or not ready 
to look for the signs and symptoms in men that are presenting. And so I'll break this down for you. What it kind of looks like in my eyes is we know that depression and anxiety are typically internalizing disorders. That is that you're going to feel hopeless, worthless. You're going to feel sadness and tired and cry and all of those stereotypes about sitting on the couch and, you're gonna and feel uh, shit. watching a rom-com. You're going to feel shit. There we go. And so if we've got that as the base idea of what these mental issues look like, what happens often in men is that they get those feelings just like women do and then they bottle them up it's not socially condoned for them to express these behaviors you know crying we've we've been speaking about this f- forever but men are just less likely to cry it's just the way it is they're also less likely to describe how hopeless or ashamed or sad they're feeling um because of the way that they're brought up as boys and we can look all the way back to 3 and 4 and 5 year old boys and see immediately a difference in the way that they emote because of the cues that they're picking up There is a significant research field which has looked at the intersection of traditional masculinity and poor help-seeking behaviours. Through common phrases, we hear things like harden up or have a cup of concrete and socialisation practices that teaches boys from an early age to be self-reliant, strong and to minimise and manage their own problems. Both of these things mean we grow adult men who are less willing to seek mental health treatment. In fact, potentially they're likely to view their distress as weakness. A 2016 study from the University of Melbourne found men who strongly identified with being self-reliant were significantly more likely to have experienced suicidal thoughts. In addition to that self-reliance, the men in this study didn't want to be seen as a burden to their families or support networks, which often drove them further away from support. For this reason, in 2019, the American Psychological Association released a Guidelines for Practice with Boys and Men. For the first time in the field's history, they were clearly acknowledging that high suicide rates, depression, anxiety, addiction and violence needed specialised focus and treatment for men. The guidelines support encouraging positive aspects of traditional masculinity, such as courage and leadership while discarding undesired traits such as aggression. There has been some criticism within the psychological community about the message delivered in this guideline, that traditional masculinity, marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression, is the cause of men's problems and therefore removing masculinity should therefore be the solution. Commentators like Zach have voiced that perhaps it is when masculinity is held in the extreme that we see difficulties arising. New York Times bestselling author and gender expert Michael Gurian, who has been called the People's Philosopher, wrote a column following the release of these APA guidelines, and I wanted to share an excerpt with you. He says, In reality, if boys are to survive and thrive in a complex world, then they must work to be strong, which means to be resilient, empowered, able to perform, and at appropriate times stoic in the face of enemies or hardship. They must be aggressive, by which he talks about assertiveness, motivated and able to battle against bullies, as well as help us fight our wars both abroad and at home. Powerful, being successful in work and life and leadership, and when needed, in fellowship to leaders who are morally sound. He says these qualities are intertwined with tenderness, kindness, compassion, spiritual vitality, empathy, fortitude, character and fatherhood. We are able to have compassion because we are strong. 
We are able to live from a position of kindness because we have the power to do so. He comments few people were more masculine than Martin Luther King, JFK, Franklin Roosevelt, Thurgood Marshall, you name it. The men who help us most are in each in their own way, quite masculine. If we're going to solve issues faced by everyone today, boys, girls, women, men, and everyone on the gender spectrum, we must challenge academic culture to go deeper into who boys are and what most people in Heath would say America and we could say the world see very clearly. He comments boys need more masculinity, not less, more fathering, not less, more healthy manhood, not less. So I wondered, reading this commentary, reading the APA guidelines, if our boys and men have been raised and reinforced with a historic and rigid view of masculinity, are men as aware of their feelings as women? Have they been taught? Have they been trained to be aware of the emotions that come up for them? Yeah, so I think that there is a pretty good awareness when someone is feeling shit. Men are really good. I've, I've worked, you know, clinically with hundreds of them who are really, really aware that they're feeling something. Sometimes they can't put their finger on it and sometimes they really struggle to describe it. That's the thing, the words, the ability to actually let it out. And so what happens is that if we get this bottling up, if we get these feelings that then are not able to be expressed through shame, guilt, you know, whatever it may be that's going on in society, we end up with men actually expressing their distress through outward-facing behaviour. That is anger, aggression, irritability, substance misuse, all of the shit that is considered men behaving badly, boys being boys, all of these stereotypical bullshit ideas that are just trying to go, oh, this is just what men do, are in fact, in my eyes and in the eyes of the data, an expression of male distress that is not being picked up on early enough. And so it's coming out in these behaviours that then get criminalised. We get boys being suspended from school. We get the jail system getting, you know, completely overrun with men and young men. And we end up with the suicide rate where these boys and men are suddenly taking their own lives out of the blue. And I promise you, if you were to follow all the way back to the very beginning of lots of these men's distress, there is no such thing as out of the blue. There is risk-taking. There is impulsivity. There are little signs and cues that are coming from these guys that we are not picking up on because we're looking for them crumpled in the corner, crying their eyes out. That's not what it looks like. That's not what it needs to look like. And we need to be able to respond to all different shapes and sizes. And some men will do that and some men won't. And so we need to be able to go, all right, Why are they not able to express themselves in the way that we might want them to? We don't need to force them to do that. We just need to reach them on their level and go, something's up. How can we help? I think the real question here is how do we support individuals to spot their own emotional reactions? How do we support boys and men to see the more vulnerable emotions that may be hidden by outward aggression, outward anger? And how do we support them to do it differently, to regulate, to see and show their emotions in a more helpful and effective way for them? But secondly, how do we support professionals to get it better, to see underneath their own potential judgments or biases, 
to look for what might be going on for a young boy or for a man if, again, what's being displayed to the world is unhelpful behaviour. And that's the second component of those APA guidelines for men and boys, which I spoke about earlier. This guideline emphasises that psychologists have a key role to play in shifting the status quo of men's mental health. And as Zach mentions, clinicians must be aware of those prevalent masculine rigid ideas, for example, that men are stoic, and their own potential biases. Mental health professionals must make themselves more aware and must also start to do it differently. And the thing that I'm lucky to have and that that people find very strange within me is that having worked with domestic violence abusers, for instance, I don't condone their behaviour, but I have some form of empathy for the situation that they're going through because typically they've gone through trauma, something's happened, there's for, there's a form of abuse and, or, or distress that's gone on in their lives. They should not be in this situation and we should not let them get there because they are taking it out on women and children and that's too late for us to intervene. It's really difficult to do that. So we need to get in early. We need to be teaching, you know, boys what is a healthy and appropriate way to express your emotions. And that doesn't mean, you know, sitting down and and having a heart-to-heart all the time. We don't need to force everybody into a box, but we do need to go, all right, what works for you? Let's ask and not assume. That's what's been going on for too long. We're assuming that men do this. We're assuming that men feel this. We need to ask them. We need to have, you know, these discussions around what does it look and feel like for you and what do you need for us to help you rather than going, we're going to intervene. I want to point out how exhausting it must be for guys to go through day to day with a toolkit that only has anger, aggression and irritability in it to draw on. That is just fucked. That's just like you've got no resources to be able to respond to what's happening around you. So far in this discussion, we've learned that men have lower prevalence rates of mental illness, but higher rates of suicide. That men's distress is often displayed externally through unhelpful behaviours, influenced by historic and rigid views of traditional masculinity, and that as a society we are not well versed in detecting what's happening underneath the aggression, the irritability, the frustration. I wanted to ask Zach, aside from this construct of toxic masculinity, are there other gender-specific factors that are impacting our boys and men? There's something that's really unique in men in comparison to women, and that is when it comes to mental health and suicidality specifically, while distress as a mental health issue is the strongest predictor for women to experience suicidality, when it comes to men, it's actually situational stresses. So it's not really a mental health issue per se, it's more things going to shit that really overwhelm them. And that ties in with masculinity. So we've got unemployment, financial distress, and relationship breakdown as the three really strong precursors for suicidality in guys. Which may link to that traditional picture, right, of as a male, I'm the provider, I'm strong, I'm stable, I'm solid. Exactly. And then you underline that with endless shame around the fact that I can't live up to those standards and I'm now feeling shit about myself and I can't show that and you end up with this cycle of distress that is never allowed to be expressed. It grows and grows and then we end up with this epidemic of male suicide really uh, where people are unable to access these emotions in the men around them and then suddenly they've lost somebody out of the blue. And so what we need to focus on is 
when these certain things are happening to the men around us, it might not look like, as I've said, that typical distress that we have come to expect when, it, when to look for suicidality. But in fact, these situations are the strongest precursors for this type of outcome. And when they feel like they're being a burden, for instance, which is really tied in with financial stability and being able to provide for one's self and, and others, we've also got the idea around the way that men are brought up while women are more likely to attempt suicide, men are more likely to die by suicide. And that's because of the methods that men are using. And that's because they're socialized to be risk-taking, impulsive. And they also are trained in some instances to use the very tools that harm themselves. Mm. So we need to be able to share this knowledge with guys early on to go, you might not even realize within yourself what's going on. You might just attribute it. Yeah, I've lost my job. I've, I've had a relationship breakdown. I'm going to be able to cope with this. I'm just going to bottle it up, move on, find a way to do something different. But you need to find someone in your life to express this to. And it doesn't matter how or when you express it. It's just a matter of getting it out there. Well, I think also supporting mental health in our society is a collective challenge and a collective ownership of that, isn't it? So that comes to what's our what's our traditional ways of educating people around spotting signs of concern and our traditional ways, as you've said earlier, are looking for someone that's low and tearful or withdrawn, etc. And so, you know, I think campaigning, teaching young children from school, but right through to how we educate in workplaces, how we have public campaigns, that if you've got men in your life that have had external factors go on for them, like they've lost their work or they've had a relationship breakdown, that don't wait and look for the signs, you need to be checking in with your people mm. at that point in time and surely really good education around that is one step in a helpful move forward. And COVID-19 is the perfect storm for this stuff, sadly. And so if anything, that camaraderie that we had really early on during lockdown where everyone's looking after one another and everyone is checking in, that naturally is going to die out. That's just what happens because everyone then <laughs> goes back and, and focuses on themselves. What happens after that is these guys who have suddenly lost all of their self-worth, all of the very things that give them a sense of achievement, once those guys have to return to normal, whatever that normal looks like, and they don't have that support network and they don't have those things to fall back on, like their job and their relationships, we're going to see that these guys are, are slipping through the cracks. And so we need to look out for them sooner rather than later. We also know, Zach, though, that, that men are not as good as reaching out for support, right? So even if they're aware that, mm. you know, things aren't going well for them, that they're struggling, there seems to be barriers in place to reaching out for support. And, you know, you've spoken today that potentially that's around shame for being vulnerable or, or not coping. They might they might have an internal thought process mm. around that, that it potentially may be I don't know, and I'm looking for your advice on this, is it that if men do reach out, the person at the other end isn't so au fait with kind of spotting what's going on underneath the surface? You know, are there other factors going on there that are those barriers for men getting the support they need? Yeah, there's a huge interplay of all of those things, uh, which means that we need to attack each of them one by one, I guess, in many ways. The way that I'm coming at it from my you know, research work is that, yes, the system is actually not really good at picking up on male distress. So whether it be GPs or mental health professionals, their own biases around what men should and should not mm. do are naturally going to take 
place. They're going to exist within the room. And we can't pretend that that doesn't happen. I'm a guy. I have expectations around how men should and shouldn't behave. I need to assess those. Just like if I'm a woman who's dealing with somebody who's gone through trauma and I've gone through trauma myself, it's going to have a natural interaction with a client where we need to understand that if they come into the room with a history, we need to be able to go, how is my own history interacting with theirs? So what are my beliefs around how men should express themselves? How am I communicating with him about what is going on for him? So we've got the guy is already struggling to get in because of what society is telling him around shame, around the fact that men don't seek help because you can deal with this on your own and cope with it on your own because it's a sign of weakness to reach out. You then get into the room and you're faced with a clinician who might not be able to pick up on the fact that your symptoms, because you're describing them as they are to you, are not considered mental health issues. And then you get to the third part where there's this interaction. And, and what I found, in fact, is that one in two guys who actually make it through all of those um, barriers actually get into treatment and then drop out. And so what happens is that we've got a pretty serious investment that's taking place with all of these guys who are really working hard to overcome barriers and then they're not getting a treatment that actually works for them, that meets them where they're at, that that understands their experience of masculinity and mental health and then they drop out. And that's just a serious waste to me. And we know that actually 60% of guys who suicide have sought help in the year prior. And so what that tells us is that we've got a pretty serious gap going on there in that that notion that men aren't seeking help and aren't paying attention to this stuff needs to be challenged. Mm. It's interesting. I'm just reflecting on my own clinical training and I cannot recall conversations around different presentations in men or women, which is astounding to me on reflection that that wouldn't have been part of our curriculum. You know, I'm also thinking about those prejudgments and You know, I hear out in the community really harsh, quick, fast reactions on people's behaviour and in a different light. You know, I was having a conversation yesterday around homelessness that I'd noticed in our city and the response that I got back was one of, you know, such negative judgment without any compassion for what that person may have gone through to get to that point. And, you know, I suppose as you're saying, you know, men going into a clinic room, probably a very sterile clinic room, and unfortunately faced with someone that might not have the energy, time, awareness to look widely, holistically below the surface is a real risk factor for us and absolutely needs to shift and change Mm. so that we can support Mm. this better for our people. And I think us as a care profession need to do it better. And I think governments need to really be looking at this properly, Zach, around how do we take individualised approaches to mental health rather than thinking that our mental health approaches can be slapstick across the board. (laughs) The idea that it's one size fits all for men, women, children, I'll just use my CBT approach and just put that 
lens on him and he'll be able to deal with it one way or another. It has to be person-centered. And the way that I, I'm very lucky that I, I do within men studies. So I look at the differences between guys because assuming that we're just going to continue to go men versus women, we know that there are differences there. We don't need to continue to shine a light on those necessarily. There are so many differences between guys. There are so many differences between gay guys and straight guys, homeless guys, unemployed guys, rich and poor. We need to be able to respond to them in ways that really recognize and see and respect their journey and their expectations around what mental health should look like, mental health treatment that is. And as you say, there's really, I think in many ways, a bit of a lack of empathy around, around men's distress. I don't think we're very good at picking up on it. I don't think we're very good at responding to it. And it means that lots of these guys who do reach out are actually faced with a brick wall. And so, I wrote this piece that was titled, We Tell Men to Open Up, But Are We Ready to Listen? And I think that that's what it comes down to. We did a survey in November where we found that while 80% of men were really willing to have a conversation with somebody, 40% who had opened up said they wouldn't do it again because they did not get a positive response. And so that really says so much about the way that we are interacting with the men in our lives and the fact that we might be complicit in perpetuating the same shit that we're trying to break down. That's not the way that this should be. As I was participating in this conversation with Zach, I started to wonder whether these difficulties that we're seeing are pertinent to the entire globe or whether that's just something we're seeing here in Australia or New Zealand. What are the cultural norms, uh, the cultural data trends when it comes to men's mental health in the world? Australia, New Zealand, the UK and Ireland are specific when it comes to some of this stuff because we have a very strong history of that type of stoic external facade that is really, really harmful. And we try to say that mateship is the thing that is going to counteract that. And look at look at this beautiful, you know, we've got this tall poppy situation. We've got all of these really great ways of relating with one another. We can go and have a beer at the pub, but none of that actually relates to real connection. And so we've got the guys that we're all really chill and we can look after each other and we have a really nice, flexible, you know, environment that we live in. But in fact, there's actually this undercurrent of... Uh, rigidity, which I think is really problematic that, yes, you don't see in Europe. There is much more verbal communication amongst men. There's much more sharing of emotional material because they're brought up to express it early. And so this is the really important thing that I want to express is that if you look at boys at the age of three and four, and one of my colleagues, Judy Chu, wrote a book about this called When Boys Become Boys, you see that they actually have a larger emotional spectrum than young girls They've got all of the the crying, the tantrums, they've got the happiness, the anger, they've got a really, really large spectrum of of behaviour. And what she did is she followed these boys in one preschool up until the age of six and she slowly watched emotions drop off whereby they were looking and she could see them looking at their fathers and looking at the other boys when they're learning how to respond to to the people in their class. Exactly. And suddenly they realise, oh, I can't do that. That's not okay. I'm not getting hugs when I do this. I'm not getting the attention that I, that I was getting back in the day. So I'm just going to lose that. And what we end up with is the fact that, and this is the crux of the issue, men are unable to show joy 
as much as they are unable to show sadness and we severely constrict their whole emotional expression to the point where we get this muted anger, irritability that is inexpressive, that is uncomfortable for everybody. And I always say to my clients, you've lost joy. You've lost happiness. It makes me feel so sad for all men, but the men in my life, that these outdated cultural norms are having such significant impacts in the way our men are experiencing life. They just need to realise that it is something that can change, that it is something that they can pick up on and that they can alter through really just an insightful reflection to go, this isn't how it needs to be. Zach has provided us a clear picture of the difficulties that our men and boys face, the risk factors that may increase their likelihood of experiencing distress, how this uh, varies across the world and what our personal risk factors here are in New Zealand. But I then wanted to ask Zach, so what do we do about it? If as a society we are committed to shifting the silent pandemic, to supporting our boys and men to feel able to express their vulnerability, to modernise their expression of masculinity, to flourish and to thrive, what are the practical things that they and we can do to support this journey? This question reminds me of a client I I saw last week actually, who was saying that his dad had suicided, you know, several years ago. And I asked him, had he ever discussed what was going on with his dad? And he said that once he brought up that his dad seemed down, his dad seemed a bit distant, and the dad just completely shut him down. He said, no, 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 what are you talking about? I don't know what you're, what you're, and the the shame and the guilt and the sadness and the, all of it was clearly on display. And the son immediately just vanished into the distance. And that moment he said, because his brother is now going through a similar situation and he feels so scared to broach the topic. Exactly. So what I recommend is bravery, courage, and facing up against stubbornness towards the situation which is in fact going to be true masculinity, which is being relentless and communicative around what is going on and hitting the shit head on is breaking through that wall and going, I don't need to be like this and a bit of awkwardness is something that I can handle. And so we all need to do that, men men and women, around embracing the fact that this isn't something that is going to necessarily be easy, but all the time when we lose somebody, everyone asks, what could I have done? So this is the time. There is no harm in ever having a conversation and Trust me, the awkwardness goes away. So I, I really think that pushing through with your, your dad or your brother or whoever it may be that seems to be this stubborn and distant guy, he's got layers and he's, he's willing to, to be able to open up. If you provide him with the space and the language and you might need to actually offer your own story first to get some reciprocity out of him. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Zach. So If I'm noticing that someone in my life has lost their job, has gone through a relationship breakdown, is more angry or irritable or taking risks more than normal, and I'm going, I want to have a conversation about this, but I'm so blooming scared or I don't know what to say, how can people start an effective conversation? What are some good practical things like 
perhaps sharing your own story or are there other good conversation starters? We've got a tool actually to be able to provide you with these conversation starters. It's called Movember Conversations and it's giving people the the words really to be able to communicate with the men in their lives. It's an online, online literally walking through like a text exchange between two guys around what's going on for you. And we use something called the ALEC model, which is really focused on ask, listen, encourage action and check in. And so it's a matter of going, asking isn't, isn't just like, what's up? Are you okay? That type of thing. It's about observational questions. So what I always do is that I ask questions that are really focused on the experience that they've shared with me. So if they're saying, I haven't been sleeping much, picking up on that and saying, hey man, I remember last week you told me that you haven't been sleeping that much. Uh, You know, what's been going on in the middle of the night in your head, for instance? And you end up with actual practical personal example that is going to get them to open up rather than a really blanket, non-specific question that they don't want to respond to. And if you've asked and listened, I'm then interested, Zach, in the encourage action because some of the criticism around supporting male mental health is that for the last however many years, the focus has been on let's talk, let's talk. You need to talk to a mate. You need to have more conversations. It's okay to be vulnerable and open up. Mm. And talking is useful, but we need more than talking sometimes to help (laughs) help our well-being. So what are those actions that could be really helpful for someone that's struggling right now? Yeah, I agree. Enough is enough. And we've done this awareness campaign endlessly. And we've told guys to reach out. We've told them to talk to one another. And it hasn't altered any of these statistics. So what we need now is... Because, again, that leaves it to people on their own, right? Exactly. If the only message you're getting is to talk and reach out, then, again, that message is you should be able to handle that by yourself and maybe with one other. Exactly. And it puts the onus on men to change rather than the system necessarily, which is what we actually need. You don't go to a physiotherapist and they go, sorry, I can't deal with your knee. That's not a knee I've seen before. And so if a guy's coming in, we need to be able to actually respond to him. But to get them in there, what I do and what I always recommend is, as I've said, that that relentless consistency. I will go, I will drive to my mate's house, I will pick him up and I will take him to the GP. If it requires that type of intervention, just to get them through that initial door, through those barriers, then so be it. And I think that too many people are unwilling to push past that, you know, oh, he's, he's a middle-aged man, I can't do that. You know, it's, it's emasculating to take it all on myself and drive him to see somebody. But in fact, that's opening up the circle. And so what I do always is I always make sure that if there is someone who is unwell, you make sure that someone else knows. So you've got this circle of influence. And then together, you don't pressure him. You get him to the point where he's willing to see that something can be better, that something can change. And then you say, I've done it. This is what it looked like in me. I've seen a therapist. She was great. Come with me. I'll book you in their first appointment, you know, just get over those initial because they'll come up with every excuse under the sun. And so we just need to get through those first barriers, get them there. And then, you know, hopefully they're going to be caught by the system. Something that I've heard too, Zach, that might be useful is even if you're having a conversation with a male in your life, maybe you'll have a more effective conversation (coughs) if it's while you're walking, throwing a football, driving a car, and you're not staring into each other's eyes in a deep and meaningful (laughs) way. Exactly. That's something that I've always recommended. I I used to have a, a pool table at my clinic and we would play pool 
while we were in session and, and it just takes your mind away from exactly what's going on. And that was the perfect, I would have a client who wouldn't say anything to me for the first three sessions. And then suddenly we're playing pool, we're throwing a ball somewhere and he is able to tell me everything out of nowhere because you've taken away those bounds and restrictions around what communication should look like and actually given him the power to express things in the way that he would like to. And so that opens up options to just go, how can this be the most comfortable setting for you? And that's quite helpful perhaps for schools or workplaces, Zach, too, if they're wanting to have conversations with their men. Get out of this idea that you have to be sitting in a bloody room facing each other. You know, like be human whilst you do it and maybe the results will be better. Zach, I suppose as we're having this conversation, my core question for you is do you have hope that this will shift? Do you have hope that this will shift in your lifetime? And if you do, and I hope you do, where does that real hope stem from for you? I have endless hope, really, because I wouldn't get up every day if I didn't believe that things could change. And it's not necessarily, as I've said, that men need to change. It's that our response to them, it's that our systems that try to hold them need to actually adapt and be tailored to, you know, respond in a a really reflective and understanding way. And so the hope stems from, I guess, my, my mate's in many ways. I see positive masculinity on display with my friends all the time. I see it in action. I know it exists, which really helps (laughs) because it shows that while it may exist within my microcosm, it definitely exists in pockets out there. And we can, if we can bottle that up and sell it as as Kool-Aid to everybody, there is potential to be able to shift the dial on some of this stuff. What, What is really exciting, I guess, in many ways is that there is lots of government focus, at least in Australia, on this stuff. There is huge amount of attention in, in the media now on, on masculinity and mental health. And we're getting to the point where men are realising that things don't need to continue as they have been. Things can shift, things can look better for them, and they can actually live a happier, healthier life um, if they reach out and get the tools that exist out there rather than hiding in a cave, I guess, in many ways. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to the Men's Mental Health episode of Mind Brew. I think back to the start of this discussion where I held in my heart my husband, my dad, my gorgeous wee nephew, as we discussed the struggles and challenges facing our boys and men in this country. As you listened, who did you hold in your heart? Is it yourself, if you're male listening to this? Is it your husband, brother, son, nephew, father, best mate, colleague? The men in our lives... The men in this country deserve better. They deserve a system that understands how men may express their emotions. They deserve a society that understands how unhelpful and rigid historic views of masculinity have put constraints on our men, have given them a very narrow script to run their lives by. And I think we all have a responsibility to support men and to support society in the rewriting of that script, that they can be strong and kind, powerful and gentle. Together, I do believe if we raise our awareness, 
if we educate better, if we support in ways that are individualised rather than globalised, then we have a chance of turning this around. I hold the hope. I hope you do too. If you enjoyed this discussion and found it useful, please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and I hope to see you again.